Welcome back to another stellar edition of In the Ballpark. Of course, you are here with Serpers, Maxi and Fryzy for a bumper edition of the Cricket Review. Yes, that is right, gentlemen. We have not only completed the men's ashes, we've completed the women's ashes, the Big Bash League, and probably some random Pakistani league as well. There is there is no more cricket really to be played until our team goes to Pakistan. But, Jen, so much cricket to talk about because what an incredible summer it's all over and gents answer me this how many wins do you think england got both the men's and the women's combined throughout the entire test summer not many <laughs> it was certainly less than australia <laughs> the correct answer is zero zilch jesus none they didn't manage to get one single win they did have a couple of draws along the way but they did not get one single win on Australian soil, both the men's and the women's squad. So obviously, gents, we are going to take the time to talk about the England woes. But gents, let's start with the incredible triumph of our men's squad, who, of course, won the Ashes of 2021-2022 Gents, did we see this form line coming? And is that one of the biggest whitewashes we've seen? Obviously, it wasn't the 5-0, but... Is that one of the most dominant displays we've seen from an Australian side? I think so. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, I mean, where does it rate, gents, in terms of the, the comprehensiveness of defeat with some of the previous recent visits England have had here? I guess it's right up there. We're still tossing up whether it was Australia's dominance or whether it was England's incompetence, because especially with their batting lineup, because I think, I mean, you go through their averages even at the start of the series, it was Root was averaging above. I mean, 50 in his career, and he had something crazy for the past year. I think he was averaging 60s or 70s or something, and the rest were averaging 30 or less. So, I mean, we we go back to the first ball of the series, and you know, it's all, as much as you know, it sounds simple, but it, that set the tone for the series. Apart from, I think Johnny Bairstow's knock in was it Sydney or yeah, so Johnny Bairstow's knock in Sydney where he made 100. And a few of the Root and Milan partnerships earlier in the series, there was just, yeah, there was just nothing in England's batting lineup that could, you know, we said at the start of the series that Cummings and Hazelwood, who didn't get to play much, and Stark, who performed a lot better than what people would have thought. And the man behind you, Sepp, Scotty Bowen, who's come out of nowhere in the end, it's ended in Chris Silverwood losing his job. And England, I just saw today that they announced their, the test squad for the Caribbean. And I was, Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad aren't in it, which is surprising. So, yeah, they lift them out, boys. They've they've just <laughs> ushered them off into the into the sunset. Two, two of the better performed players for the Ashes series as well, which is surprising. It doesn't make a lot of sense, guys. I see. Uh, you know, we, we we've now got the the interim coach Paul Collingwood taking over for. I mean, who knows how long? But is this a real statement? First up, I, I'm I'm just going to leave these two at home. Gents, I've just got to say real quickly, it, it, it's so funny that both Australia and England both have interim coaches and both the interim coaches are redheads. What is going on? <laughs> have they coordinated this? The year of the redhead. The year of the redhead. Maybe they're compensating for the lack of redheads in the team. Maybe not England so much. They've got a few, but Australia... best time. There's a few of them, aren't there? And, and even you could almost say Ollie Pope as well if you're slightly colourblind. But mm. honestly, it's it's incredible. One of your predictions was that, you know, the England top order weren't going to fire or if they were to fire, they would give themselves a better chance of winning the series and relying on, on Root and even Milan to really bat them 
to to a much more respectable total than what they had on the board. Not too much to rave on about at the real top of the England order. No. <laughs> like, uh, Haseeb made all the commentators were saying, oh, this bloke plays with, plays with lower hands. He's going to struggle in Australia. And I sort of didn't really understand what that meant until it's the, <laughs> the series sort of went on. Like, oh, that's what it means. And Rory Burns, I think he sort of showed a tiny bit of improvement at the end, but there's just... That technique looks like there's just so much going on. And Milan, two games at the start were good. And after that, pretty much non-existent. And Root sort of as well. The last few tests he tailed off as well. So, yeah. <laughs> ben Stokes, I suppose, he looked all right at times, but he sort of played a lot within himself, really defensive. It seemed to be a lot of innings where Stokes would be like five off like 50 balls. And you're just thinking, is this the bloke who won won that game at Headingley? But yeah, you're right, man. That's going to be the theme of the discussion around the Ashes is just England's batting with shit. And that's, and that's really well said, Maxie. And I think one of the most frustrating players in this series for mine in the England team was, believe it or not, Joss Butler. And you see mm. this guy playing white ball cricket and he is unbelievable. He hits the ball so well, so crisp. And he's such an aggressive player when it comes to the white ball and the shorter formats of of cricket, but then you see him in, at test level and he just goes into his shell. He almost thinks that test match cricket means I've got to defend everything or I've got to, you know, wait until I play a good ball instead of coming out and actually being an aggressor. He, he did it at the very start of the tour. Yeah. At the Gabba, he looked really good, 30 off whatever it was. And he and you just thought, well, maybe England might get to 250, 300 here in their first innings, despite starting really badly. And then for the rest of the tour, he just really went into his shell. Yes, commendable effort uh, at the Adelaide Oval where he, he, <laughs> he nearly like registered them. Yeah. He made like 26 he... off 150 goals or something. He, he batted for a long time, didn't he, boys? Batted for a long time. And the way he got out, <laughs> even more infuriating. Stood on his stumps. It barely happens, gents. But honestly, for him, I, I just want to see him gain some more confidence, go back, play his natural aggressive game and... Hopefully then for the for the guy, I mean, regardless of what country he plays for, we want to see, you know, players that are naturally aggressive, like your Travis Heads, actually be given the the freedom to go out there and play their natural style because we saw it with Travis Head and I'm sure we'll get to him shortly. When they play their natural style, they're aggressive, they're dangerous, and they can take the game away from the opposition. So for mine, Joss Butler, very frustrating. And of course, gents, Dropped a couple of really crucial catches there too. Oh, critical. I think it's good you mentioned that. I was, let me ask you, boys, I was going to touch on that. If a guy like him almost forgets that it's test cricket, comes out and plays that natural game, I mean, what's what's the outcome, better or worse? I mean, I I think a guy like that, you've regardless, you've you've got to show that um, that pure natural ability that he has uh, imagine imagine a, a guy like that gets going in a test match you know and, and we we just didn't get to see it could have been the next adam gilchrist but unfortunately he's just really goes into his into his shell and yeah it's a real disappointment because england definitely hinged a lot of hopes on him being a really good player at test level and it almost looks like now potentially sam billings could take that spot in future test matches seems sort of yeah. weird that england have so many batsmen who can be keepers. <laughs> like they've got Bairstow, um, Butler, Ollie Pope, yeah, Ollie and then Pope. Butler, That's who true. came in He came in from the BBL. It's not like he was in the test squad originally. So I think England fans, from what I've sort of seen, they like after every poor series that Josh Butler has, they go, 
oh, is this going to be, is he finally going to retire from test cricket? Is he finally going to retire from test cricket? So test cricket is sort of what people say is the pinnacle of the sport, but you've got to wonder when you're so good at the white form, do you just put all your eggs in that basket? Some of those spilled catches, that didn't really bode well and doesn't for his future behind the pegs. I just think that that, that sort of summed up the, the core of their issues for the whole series, just mistake after mistake and I mean, Australia were far from perfect, but I think they made less mistakes. How many wickets did they take off no balls? <laughs> oh, my God. What an issue that was. You definitely knew something was up. It's like, it's like you you just picked up David Warner for, you know, relatively cheap 30-odd. What, you don't react like that. You must, you must have known something was up. We hear the same conversations and the same um, promises from the England camp every time, barring that one victory, um, of course, a few years ago about how they're going to improve and what they're going to do differently in Australia. I know they were ripped apart by the situation and, you know, lack of preparation and personnel. I know, and, and, and I think we, we owe them a fair bit of, you know, sympathy for that. But on paper, the results are no different to most of the other times they come here. So that they keep talking about, we're going to do this. We're going to change our strategy when we're here in four years' time. We're going to plan for this. And we're going to... Who's, who's making these, these changes or who's doing this planning? Because we, we don't seem to see any evidence of it the next time they arrive. That might be why their coach just got sacked. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a really good point you make, Fryzy. Nearly every time we just, we just expect them to, to stay on a tactic that is working in one session or in one day just a little bit longer. But it's almost like in this day and age, this England lineup is just not patient enough to see through a plan. Uh, whether that's a bowling plan or a bowling change or, or picking the right squad for the right conditions instead of looking forward to, to another test match that is down the track. It's baffling when you think about it. Like, don't, don't you just pick the best squad available based on the best performances that you get from your players for every single test and, and not worry about resting players? I think they've got their strategies completely messed up. And when you think about their batting lineup too, I mean, the word patience just doesn't come into calculation, does it, gents? It was it Hobart? Australia were three down, like, really quickly. And I think, oh, okay, we've got a game here, finally. Travis Head and Marnus originally had that small partnership. And Marnus sort of fell over <laughs> and he got himself out. It's one of the most Cameron ridiculous Green. dismissals I've ever seen. Oh. And then Cameron Green made like a 70-odd, but by that time, Travis Head had made 100-odd. And like, yeah, and it was just like a green seam and you think, okay, England have got a balls out for 100 here. And all of a sudden, I can't remember what we ended up making. It might have been... 300. But just for that brief moment, you think, okay, if England get the next few wickets, they almost can't lose from here. And all of a sudden, in within an hour, Australia can't lose. You sort of shake your head at some of the what goes on from England down here sometimes. They have a habit of doing that, England sides in Australia. They get to a certain position where they're on top and everything that you think should happen then doesn't happen because they just leave that door open enough and Australia take the opportunity to get back in the game. And that's exactly what happened there. I mean, you, you have a side three or four down to ne for next to nothing. You, you shouldn't allow it to, to then get to where it got to, uh, knowing how fragile England's batting was to follow that. And goodness me, like, as you said, Maxi, they've just, the last five tests, they've not addressed any questions in that, uh, that batting lineup between one to six. I don't know how, how many question marks are in there. Probably, probably at least half of those. Oh. You mentioned, um, a moment ago, Australia 
scoring up around 300 for that innings. Well, fancy England going an entire series and not passing 300 once. I mean, you, you can't expect to win a single match coming here and doing that. Again, as we mentioned, the frailty of England's batting just honestly just really shone through. And gents, we must talk about the Australian bowling because it was first class. And we've been saying it for years and Australia has one of the best bowling lineups in the world. And you got to say in this series, hats off to them. With some serious depth, <laughs> the Australian bowlers were just far too dominant. And Pat Cummins, being the new captain, managed to get a fifer in, in the very first innings there and really set the tone for the rest of the series for some of our incumbent bowlers. I think as Australians, maybe we underestimate how good the Sheffield Shield the competition is because you look at blokes like Nisa and Richardson just come straight into international cricket and, and Scotty Boland, of course, and just they're taking fifers and they're giving international batsmen a lot of trouble. So, yeah, it just goes to show how much how much depth there is in Australian cricket and how unlucky some of those bowlers have been because of Cummins, Stark and Hazelwood who have been there together. And there's probably a few others who didn't play the could easily step into international cricket and be taking wickets. It's a great sign when these top quality quicks barely get a look in and they really haven't. These guys like Richardson, Neeser, Boland, there's others um, as well. Sean Abbott comes to mind. Um, Jackson Bird over the last few years. There's there's probably a couple more. where We've, we've only seen glimpses of these guys um, on the rare occasion because that, that main big four that's sort of held the mantle for probably four to five years now have done such an amazing job. It's It probably will go down as one of the, the best bowling attacks that Australia have, have had at any one time. And of course, they've had so many, but that would have to be right up there. As for Scotty B, I know we, we, we have talked about him. We will talk about him for a long, long time. But um, to think that somebody can play three out of five tests and be right in the running for the player of the series just says it all, I think. And Frizy, you were the man that was there on that third day at the MCG, that famous third day at the MCG. It, it's hard to even call it a third day, considering it was only really what, what not even a full session. Frizy, take us, take us to the ground at the MCG. Tell us what it was like to be there in person and 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 how amazing was this performance by Sir Scott Boland. I mean, there wasn't much, boys. I mean, it, it was less than an hour. Um, but what was incredible was that, that perhaps some of the thinking heading in there on that third morning was, okay, well, England, you know, three or four down, whatever they were, but hang on, they've still got Root and Stokes in the middle and a little bit more to follow. Can they get firstly in front? And then from there, who knows? Okay, yes, they're not um, in the favourable position, but can they get 120, 150 in front, something to keep this game going give them something to bowl at and goodness me, at least get it to a fourth day. What happened next was just something totally unexpected, not from Scotty Bowler, not from anybody. I certainly thought England would, would at the very least get in front. Now guys, you tell me how often does a side such as Australia in this case score 260, whatever I think it was, 267, 268? And only about a <laughs> Yeah. So how, how often do you pose a score like that and you win by an innings? That that should never happen, even if even if they were playing against Zimbabwe. Should mention the figures, the famous figures, six for seven Scott Boland had in that second innings. Frizy, it, it was absolute carnage out there. Who knows what was going through the, the mindset of their dressing room on that morning. You can probably guess. <laughs> but uh, I felt like as soon as Root 
nicked off um, the remaining batsmen, eight, nine, ten, what have you. I think they'd almost conceded it was a it was a done deal, and um, from there it, it it all just happened very very quickly. What an incredible result. And Scott Boland, it's fantastic to see him now in the squad for Pakistan as well. So hopefully that incredible test average that he has and this extraordinarily short, but certainly very impressive test career continues over there. They might be slightly tougher pitches to bowl on, but hopefully the the romance and the and the fairy tale story continues for Scotty Boland. Now, gentlemen, we should talk about another bowler who I think had a very underrated uh, series. Let's talk about Cam Green for a moment because I think we're finally starting to see the fruits of, of of him being trusted by the Australian selectors and the hierarchy there to really develop, blossom as a young all-rounder. And he is, particularly with the ball, he had a quite incredible series, didn't he, gents? Kept on getting Joe Root out. Cool ball. <laughs> it was just like, all right, you're just going to get the best best batsman in the world out for fun. But um, yeah, eventually that flowed into his batting, which... Um, starting to improve after I think it was Ricky Ponting gave him some comments in the meter and he sort of started implementing it and his batting started to improve. So if you can put it all together, we're going to have a serious play, but he's still young. So, you know, there's sort of still a bit of that frustration. Come on, come on. But you got to remember that he's, this bloke's what, 22, 23. So imagine when he's 28, 29, what this kid's going to be like. As for the performance with the ball though, well, he certainly showed us he's um, more than just a, you know, a reliable or a handy fifth bowling option, if you like. I mean, if, if this guy had to take the new ball or first change, he could do it. I don't really see any reason why not. Um, and I'm glad that they just stuck with him and they probably will for some time to come yet. I think a guy like this, that's what they've got to do. And, um, you know, before you know it, 50, 60 test matches under his belt with, with, with time on his side. Managed to make some decent scores in that India series, but really he came into his own in this series and the future looks very bright for Cam Green if he can stay on the park. And gents, speaking about a guy who we didn't even think was going to be on the park for that first test and there was heaps of speculation around his spot at number five, but didn't Travis Head have an unbelievable series? The deserved winner in your eyes of the man of the series? Toss up for him, um, between him and Stark for me, because I thought I probably put a bit more waiting on the first three tests um, considering that's when it was up for grabs and I thought Stark bowled really well and he also contributed with the bat really well. So for me, it was between him and Travis Head, but I suppose two test hundreds in a series that was clearly dominated by the ball. Maybe that's why they picked him, but yeah, you're right. Those two innings went against the grain of what all the other batsmen were doing, both at the Gabba and then in Hobart, where he's just like, well, I haven't got the greatest technique, so I'm just going to throw caution to the wind and see, see where that gets me. And he backed himself and... Yeah. Ended up getting himself player of the series. So, yeah, it was an awesome performance. The approach was uh, bold but successful, as we know. Uh, whether it's not having that trust in your own um, defensive game and rather, well, okay, I'm just going to be proactive and aggressive here to, to take them on. Uh, sort of the sort of the anti Chris Rogers, uh, <laughs> if you like. But then again, there's two guys just using their strengths um, to their advantage. And yeah, I, I felt those innings, uh, yeah, they, they set the tone. And I think very true that, yeah, they were against the grain in a sense. No one of his teammates or goodness, certainly not any of the opposition batsmen were able to um, adapt so quickly to it. So he, he, he sort of swung both those matches around with those knocks. 
I think it's worth mentioning, gents, he was the only player in the series to score multiple test hundreds in different tests because, of course, Usman Khawaja, we better not forget him. He managed uh, yes. to score those 200s at the SCG. Yep. So Usman comes in when poor Travis is, is out of that test match and does what he does. Pretty extraordinary and good to know that we have that depth in our batting lineup considering that spot was yeah, a pretty dour-looking one not that long ago. What do you guys sort of make of that? five in the opening position now because sort of because <laughs> Kawaja made all of his runs at five and then he goes into opening and I know that was a very very tough um tough place to open the batting in Hobart when I think it was under lights and they were using the pink ball but now they're going to Pakistan does Kawaja open the batting in Pakistan oh boys it's a it's a yes from me um I think based on his performance there four years ago, we remember that 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 first test there that he that he saved. Um, I think for memory, he opened with Aaron Finch. I know that was the series where Finch was thrown in sort of unexpectedly and he didn't last much longer. That was a little series there that for a couple of matches, it actually featured heavily in the test documentary there. I remember so that, yeah. yeah. Especially that first test um, that they saved, largely thanks to Kawaja. So I just feel like because of that alone... Um, he should be in the box seat. Beyond that series, though, it's it's a very tough one to call. The scorecard from that Pakistan test, where of course we held out for a draw, and you are you are correct, gentlemen. He did open the batting there. He made an eighty-five in the first innings, and then one hundred and forty-one in that second innings to pretty much anchor the ship and make sure Australia got home in that famous test in Dubai. So he can do it. Um, whether he can do it for the entire series or not is yet to be seen, but. I think a pretty safe option up there at the top, particularly if Warner or Harris don't fire. I don't know if I see Harris going there and, and necessarily succeeding. Uh, not saying it can't happen, but I'd, I'd just be banking on Kawaja, probably the, the better chance to do that. I think I sort of think that Kawaja is probably a better player of spin than Harris. So you'd think yeah. with yeah. that, if he does succeed, then he's probably going to be the opener for the next few years. And then... We're in an interesting spot because him and Warner, I believe, are the same age. So if they have a successful few years in, you know, down the road, we could be potentially looking at replacing both of them around the same time. But someone who's not going to be going on this Pakistan series is unfortunately the ex-Australian cricket coach when it's a real sad end to his four years as the Australian cricket coach. Um, of course, Justin Langer, he pretty much earned Australia's reputation as a cricketing nation and a cricketing team back with that incredible 2019 Ashes series and, and rebuilding this team and making Australians proud again of this cricket team. He may be a bit hard at times, but that's exactly what Australian cricket has needed. So it's really disappointing. There's not much else he could have done as we've been talking. Yeah, really sad way to end for, for Justin Langer. And hopefully he gets a new gig somewhere else. But what are your thoughts on the whole situation? Is that new gig going to be lining up against Australia in 2023? What it does probably highlight to us is that, um, look, there's obviously a lot more going on in the background and things that none of us are sort of um, privy to. And, and I certainly acknowledge that, yeah, he, he probably has been and always will be the kind of guy, JL, that's, very um, driven and intense. That's how he's always described and that. But I sort of look at that and think on one hand, well, uh, yeah, okay, if, even if he is like that, I mean, he's also your coach and he's he's shown that results can can, can come from that um, on, on most occasions. He, he doesn't have to be your best mate. 
a T20 World Cup victory there as well. So clearly having incredible success. And yet here we are without an Australian cricket coach, a very well-respected one, might I add. It's pretty sad because I think when was South Africa? Was it 2017, 2018? If you sort of, if we went back to that time and ran down the list saying Australia going to regain the Ashes in England, they're going to win a T20 World Cup in the subcontinent and they're going to win the home Ashes 4-0, but you're going to get rid of your coach. You'd be surprised. But I mean, there was a fair bit of rumblings, I think it was maybe a year ago after we lost that, the home series in India. And I think there was a subcontinent series where apparently there was some things that went down. But yeah, what Frizy said, he's saying that the players have got a lot more power than they once did. And yeah, for, for Justin Langer to be offered six months is kind of insulting. You may as well just say, we're not going to rehire you rather than, you know, give him a six-month contract that you know he's not going to accept. I thought that was pretty disappointing. Just be honest and say, look, the, play, the players want want to go down a different path and, you know, we're going to separate ties rather than offering him a six-month contract, which I thought was pretty poor. Oh, it was appalling, wasn't it? Yeah. Almost a John Worsfold approach. <laughs> <laughs> I will just add in as, as perhaps one small similarity that I sort of drew between the two is that I think with both of those appointments regardless of how they ended or what transpired, they were both perfect candidates and 110% suitable at the time, which I think with Langer, he, he was. We, we, we saw the way that he, um, he sort of carried the, this team once he arrived in the job. Um, those first 12 months, you know, he, the, the whole vision and everything that was, you know, it, it was all there to, to completely transform the group. And I, I think it's hard to argue that it didn't do that. Really interesting. A lot of strong takes from ex-players have come out. Some of them on, you know, different sides of the fence too. It's mostly like the past captains as well, like Ricky Ponting, Mark Taylor, Steve Waugh, Michael Clark, all were negative on the decision. Mm. It just showed you didn't have the, the guts to come out and say you want to sack the guy. John Worsfold example, it's hitting home more than I think about it because you remember at the, was it, 2019 where everyone was sort of thinking get rid of him get rid of him but they went into the succession plan rather than just having the balls to get rid of him so yeah 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 (laughs) and gents what is it about treating western australians so poorly what have they done to us (laughs) (laughs) the last two years had anything to do with it no No, yeah that's right that's right (laughs) i think uh, that's that's a whole another podcast or two needed for that and just quickly on the Big Bash season, what did we think of it? <laughs> I didn't. Wa- I barely watched the second of it, if I'm going to be honest. But ser- seriously, though, they have to figure out a way. Now, I think they have to cut the season down to just everyone plays each other once, and maybe one more game where they play the like the state rivalries where you know I think the two Melbourne teams play, the two Sydney teams play, and then you sort of figure out the rest. But it's just way too much, and even if there is extra money in it. To me, like even if I was the boss, but it's embarrassing that there's nobody turning up to our game. So I'd rather, like, even if it does, if it loses me a little bit of money, okay. But I'd rather the stands being at least half full than absolutely nobody, absolutely no one in the stands and nobody watching. So they have to figure out a better way to structure the white ball and red ball within the season. And it was a joke that they didn't allow Steve Smith to play because every single, oh. every year that oh. it comes around, we say, oh, wouldn't, how much better would the Big Bash be if the actual test players are playing? And they get the opportunity and they say, oh, no, you can't play. Six has lost the final. I mean, they're, 
they're probably a better chance going into that final with Smith in the team than out of it, I'm sure. And with all the COVID troubles and, you know, a lot of teams missing pretty much half a squad, I mean, take any kind of help that you can get. And, and they had top-ups playing, but they wouldn't allow Steve Smith. <laughs> they wouldn't allow Steve Smith. They have, what's his name? Avadato or whatever his name is, playing for every big bash he's, team there he's is. Certainly no, he's certainly no Steve Smith. It, it, certainly. It, it, really, mate, I thought I saw you out there one night, sir. I reckon I, reckon <laughs> I was building one night, Maxie. I saw you. <laughs> My God, I was opening the batting for the start uh, at one point. I thought I saw you having a trundle. <laughs> it could have been. Yeah, that was me whacking into the stumps. It wasn't Harris Ralph, it was me in disguise. <laughs> Gee, uh, it was it was pretty dire, wasn't it, gents? <laughs> it, it look it was. And I think, you know, as as Maxie said, that the, the biggest issue that probably has been for a few seasons is the length. I I feel like this thing that was once fabulous is almost at a bit of a crisis point right now. Just as a bit of info, gents, that I managed to to dig up from a, a, a recent um piece that I found here so I know there's a lot of other external factors and you know once in a lifetime things that is pandemic that, that are involved but the tournament just finished average 630,000 viewers uh, whereas it also points back to the peak 2016 average of 1.1 million per game Whoa. Fryzy, I really hate to use this comparison, but I am pretty sure Married at First Sight got over 800,000 in the first episode. I'm not saying there's a correlation, but Jesus, that's pretty embarrassing that the Big Bash can't even beat Married at First Sight. Either stick it in early November or now. And you know what? I think the only reason we don't see either of those is it all comes back to school holidays. I think that's where they... True. They yeah. want to um, have their their viewers, you know, being primarily younger audience, I guess, and their parents. I I suspect that's the the reason. There could be something else, but off the top of my head, I'd... maybe grounds because they'd have to get the pictures in there while they're preparing oh, yeah. the footy. Maybe. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. They wouldn't want that carrying on into March. Unbelievable, unbelievable season. Well, we're not going to talk much more about the Big Bash League, gentlemen, but. Just in a sentence, your favourite highlight from the Ashes summer. What is it, goal? You go first then, Seb. Give us a moment. All right, well. Yeah, come on, come on. It would, it would, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Hey, wait, you can't, you can't, I, you can't pick Scotty Boland. I'm not going to pick ah. Scotty Boland. My highlight from this Ashes tour, and I'm so sorry to say this because I know how painful this is, but when Joe Root late on, I think it was day three or day four, Adelaide oh, no. Oval got hit in the Jets crackers. We know how <laughs> painful it is. Just the stump mics picking up that awful sound when it hit it and he went, oh! I love that, Serp. Something a bit something a bit left field and um, I'm glad you went with that. I'm, I'm just going to, as a sentence, I'm just going to headline it as genuine WTF. Can someone tell me why Travis Head has to lose a portion of his match fee oh, because yeah. he swore after missing. I know he audibly, audibly said, oh, yeah, and I won't repeat it, obviously. <laughs> but are we are we really at the stage where someone's being clipped dollars because of that? Okay, the guy should have known the microphone was on. It's been on for years. I get that and, you know, clumsy on his part. But goodness me, is that a bit of a stretch? I bet when Virat Kohli spoke into <laughs> that, that stump mic, he probably got a new mansion for that. I've just finished watching the 15th season of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I'm telling you, that word is thrown around like it's a bit of a grain of salt, honestly. It's ridiculous. As a disclaimer, the WTF certainly means what the... As a, <laughs> as a, 
as opposed to where's the fans. I'm not talking about the big bash. <laughs> Do you remember? Um, I think Johnny Verso and Ben Stokes had that pretty good partnership in. Um, I think it was in Sydney, and they got into that brawl with a or yeah. not a brawl, but they got into a bit of a war war words with a few of the patrons in the SCG. That was pretty funny to me. I did notice that uh, the, the real courage of that person, he's had a go at Stokes, firstly, when he's got his hands full of his gear, and secondly, yeah. he's, when he's over the other side of the stand and he, he can't really <laughs> react. What about Stuart Broad saying, stop moving the robot? I was yeah. just like, what's he talking about? <laughs> and oh, if he was, if he was going to get angry about anything, Stuart Broad, it should have been the fact that he wasn't picked for Brisbane. God, we, we spoke about the errors that they made across the whole tour, and... I know you guys sort of said it already, but the way they shot themselves in the foot with selection at times. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today on In the Ballpark and for this incredible look back at an amazing victory by the Australians. Yeah, boys, it's been an absolute pleasure and um, what a remarkable, unique, bizarre home <laughs> season. We, I know everyone everyone keeps crapping on about unprecedented times and yeah, 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 we've heard that, but we probably won't see a lot of the stuff again. So great to chat about it. As usual, fellas. You're right, guys. It was definitely when we. I reckon when we think about think back on this in a few years, it would be one of the more bizarre series to think back on. But as soon as we know it, the 2023 England series would be around the corner. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> looking forward to it. Sir. It's 18 <laughs> months away, really, isn't it? That's it. It comes around very quickly, gentlemen. Thank you again. It's been a pleasure.